Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, a call for New Jerseyans to conserve water during these hot temperatures. We are concerned that if it continues to be dry and continues to be hot, the demands on the reservoirs and other water supplies may increase. WBGO's John Kalish reports on a small group of Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn that's reviving the tradition of cantorial music. Some of the cantors who appeared at this gathering were recorded on the new album, Golden Ages. An uplifting story about the third and fourth grade girls track team at Kip Academy in Newark competing in the National Junior Olympics. We started you know, running laps around the hallways and then I got measurement tape actually and measured out the hallway to see how many meters actually is one lap. I'll chat with those responsible for the entertaining and popular American Cornhole League. And critic Harlan Jacobson reviews Jordan Peele's Nope. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. Temps will be back in the 90s later this week, and following this long stretch of hot weather and dry conditions, officials in the Garden State are asking you to conserve water. WBGO's Kenneth Burns has more. State geologist Jeff Hoffman says water levels across New Jersey are okay, despite below normal rainfall over the last three months. Some stream flows are down, groundwater levels are down, and some reservoir levels are at normal or below normal levels. But officials are concerned that if hot and dry conditions continue, the demands on reservoirs and other water supplies may increase. We would prefer not to get that way, so we're asking now all citizens to use water wisely. We are concerned that if it continues to be dry and continues to be hot, the demands on the reservoirs and other water supplies may increase, in which case they would drop faster and perhaps get to levels where that would require some sort of drought action, either a drought watch or warning. Hoffman and other officials within the Department of Environmental Protection are urging residents to curb their water usage, like watering the lawn no more than twice a week, preferably after 10 p.m., to cut down on water evaporation into the atmosphere. Kenneth Burns, WBGO News. Commuters have been asking and wanting this for a long time, and now it's official. The MTA is going to be increasing Wi-Fi and cell service in the subway system. The details from WBGO's Scott Pringle. The MTA board signed off on a plan to eliminate dead spots within the subway system by adding cell phone and Wi-Fi connectivity to the whole system over the next 10 years. The MTA's Frederica Cuenca has been working on the plan. People today, they want to be able to send emails or texts, do whatever, through their entire trip and not have their connection phase in and out as they're going through the tunnels. This will cost $600 million, but Transit Wireless will foot the bill and do the work. It'll recoup the cost by renting out the service to companies and through licensing fees. It's a great opportunity to, to make our customers trip better. Uh, to bring private investment into the system and to generate revenue. Scott Pringle, WBGO News. When cantors lead Jewish congregations in prayer and song, they hope to inspire people spiritually. Sometimes that involves improvising during solo singing. That's what happened in the golden age of cantorial music back in the 1920s, when these virtuosos began to make records. WBGO's John Kalish reports now a small group of Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn is reviving the tradition and has a new album. 
Jeremiah Lockwood comes from a family of cantors. He wrote his doctoral dissertation about Orthodox Jewish cantors in Brooklyn today, singing pieces made famous on recordings from the 1920s. They're young artists who have mastered the vocal techniques of the great cantors of the early 20th century, and it's astounding. Forget questions about creativity versus imitation. The fact that they're physically able to do it is just mind-blowing. This is an informal Hasidic sing-along recorded in 2018, a kind of cantorial jam session where solos are handed off with the point of a finger. Some of the cantors who appeared at this gathering were recorded on the new album, Golden Ages, Brooklyn Hasidic Cantorial Revival Today. This is Yoel Cohn singing a prayer that deals with the fleeting nature of human life. He also performed it at the Jewish Culture Festival in Poland in late June, an important Jewish musical event. When you start improvising and it works, there's that feeling of, wow, this is something coming through me. I'm not even doing this. That is the most special feeling in the world. And that's really what any decent cantor aims to achieve. Yankee Lemmer is one of the best known cantors in the world. He credits YouTube with putting him on the map and the recent spread of cantorial music. That's Moisha Kusevitsky, one of the Golden Age cantors. Yoel Cohn, who appears on the new album, disputes the notion that a resurgence of the genre is underway. This is not really a revival as much as a dying gasp. Whether there will be enough interest left to keep this going indefinitely as some obscure genre of music, like Baroque music, that I don't know. But Hankus Netsky, a professor at the New England Conservatory of Music, says that what's happening may be both a passing and a rebirth. In any event, Netsky says he's been waiting for someone like Lockwood to come along. I think Jeremiah Lockwood is an arbitrator between the generation that is seeing cantorial music die in the congregation 
and the younger generation that's seeing the potential of cantorial music to be rediscovered. I see these guys as being brilliant singers, brilliant artists, and they're so underground. Nobody's heard of them. Once again, Jeremiah Lockwood. I wanted to create a possibility for them to be able to do what they're greatest at out in the world, and I wasn't sure who the audience for that would be, or if there would be an audience for it. The Golden Ages album is available as both a digital download and a vinyl LP. Jeremiah Lockwood's doctoral dissertation will be published as a book in 2023. For the WBGO Journal, I'm John Kalish. The girls' track team at Newark's Kip Life Academy is in Sacramento, California for the U.S. ATF National Junior Olympics after some help from the New Jersey Children's Foundation. WBGO's Janice Kirkell has the story. The school doesn't have a track for the team to train on. Coach Rilwan Adeneron says they had to get creative. We started you know, running laps around the hallways, and then I got, was it a measuring stick or a measuring tape, actually, and measured out the hallway to see, okay, how many meters actually is one lap. So it was um, pretty humbling, but like, you know, Great experience. To get to the national meet, the team competed in the New Jersey regionals, where each team member placed in the top five in a race. Leading up to uh, the nationals, a couple of them were talking about, uh, so how do I get to California? How do I get to California? You know, you have to, as a coach, tell them, listen, it's one step at a time. You know, you got to get through these meets first and then you go into California. So they're really excited to have this opportunity. The foundation gave $10,000 to the school so the team of third and fourth graders could make the trip. Galen Johnson, director of external affairs, says it was an easy decision. When we look at most schools, you know, they, they have their academic impacts, but most schools also have impacts outside of the classroom. And so anything we can do to support those efforts. This is the team's first year competing. Janice Kirkell, WBGO News. You probably have played cornhole at a backyard party or barbecue, or even a college sports tailgate. Cornhole really gained momentum in participation and viewership during the pandemic, when many other sports had to shut down. But the American Cornhole League has continued to flourish, and it's the subject of my latest Sports Jam podcast. I thought you would enjoy hearing from the top players in the world. The 2022 ACL World Championships are coming up August 3rd through the 7th. This is the biggest event of the year. There's more than $250,000 in guaranteed cash payouts. And similar to the golf majors, these ACL pros are competing for high prize money payouts and standings that lead up to the 2022 ACL World Championships. I'm thrilled to have guests today. As I mentioned, they are the best in the world. Stacy Moore is the commissioner and founder of the ACL. Stacy, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having us, Doug. I appreciate it. Congratulations on a terrific run already. Trey Ryder is the very entertaining television analyst who's been dubbed the Tony Romo of Cornhole. Trey, great to see you. Yes, thanks so much. Excited for this. And when you're going to talk about Cornhole, why not go to the best players in the world? And that's what we're doing here on Sports Jam. Kaylee Hunter is a college student, and she's attending community college in Winston-Salem. 
and she has everybody talking about her skills. And so, Kaylee, it's an honor to have you here. Thank you for having me. And the amazing Mark Richards, who is a physical education teacher, and that is in Tri-Township in Wanata, Indiana. And Trey is a rookie on the tour, and he has just taken the ACL by storm. If you watch him, you just shake your head. And if you watch Kaylee, too, you just go, how do they do this with such consistency? Well, they're pros, and that's how it happens to be. So thanks for joining us, Mark. Hey, thank you for having me. So Friday, August 5th, is also the Celebrity Charity Super Bowl World Championships in Rock Hill, South Carolina, which will be a two-hour broadcast live on ESPN The Ocho, where eight celebrities and eight ACL pros are competing for $1,000 for charity. So, Stacy, I want to start off with you. In order for a league to have success these days, it has to be backed by sponsors and viewership and ESPN and other networks like that. You've done that. It didn't come about easy. wasn't easy at all. A lot of, uh, a lot of hard work, a lot of networking, a lot of persistence uh, got us to where we are today. And um, we certainly appreciate the opportunity that ESPN and Johnsonville and Bushes and Bacardi, Mike's Hard Lemonade and All Cornhole have given us to, to grow this great sport. You just mentioned some really top sponsors. So people... You know, when I told people at the radio station that I would be doing cornhole, the excitement just peaked out and and one person hadn't seen it. And they say, you're missing out. You're missing out if you haven't watched cornhole. And a lot of people, Stacey, did start to watch this during the pandemic, right? Yeah, absolutely. The, the pandemic, I think, uh, introduced us to a, to a whole new group of people because they were able to see us on a consistent basis week after week. So it was a big... Uh, big opportunity for us that that we've taken full advantage of taking full advantage of being a young guy who's played the sport but is even better broadcaster that's maybe why they call him tony romo of cornhole but maybe because he can predict what's going to happen as well and use that telestrator trey you have just uh, made this sport so much better to watch because of your analysis and the fun that you have with it yeah, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I definitely uh, Tony Romo was a lot better at football than I was at cornhole. So uh, I think that's a little little generous to say. But no, certainly uh, you're right. It comes from a, a point of having fun and a passion for it. I started playing this game growing up as a player. And, and once you learn to play after a couple of years, you just find yourself uh, really immersed in it. And you learn all the different strategies and intricacies of the game. And so being an analyst for, for a sport like Cornhole, really, I just kind of wanted to be my job to relay to the general public all of the small details and intricacies of the game that people would find really interesting, right? A lot of people think, hey, I just, it, it, you just do what Mark Richards does. I just slide the bag in 36 times out of 36 times, right? And sometimes that's what happens, but other times you get yourself in a situation where there's defense and there's strategy and there's, and it's, it, it becomes a chess game between opponents. And and really what I, I pride myself in is trying to relay exactly what is going on in the mind of the players um, in that chess game to, to see who ultimately comes on top. Now, I don't I don't I don't know if I envision Richards trying an airmail here. He may just try to grab. Oh, no, he is. And hits them both. <laughs> 
that shows how confident he is because normally he, don't get me wrong, he's got some aggressive tendencies, but he's not one like Josh Holland to go after every single opportunity. Him going at it in that situation tells me he is feeling it. Recently, I watched a tournament that Kaylee won, and Kaylee, there were some very difficult shots that you had to make, and they're called airmail. And I know airmail drag is your favorite. Can you describe what happens and how you make that work to so much success? Um, well, especially on TV, um, it's a lot harder because there's more pressure and, you know, everyone's watching you, but the airmail is definitely a hard shot, but it's definitely one of my favorites. I've actually been practicing on my airmail game here recently. I try to throw, like when I'm practicing, I try to throw like 10 or 20 airmails at the end, or sometimes I just go and practice and just throw airmails. And that kind of skips, right? It skips over the blockers, people that have set yeah. up, right? Yeah, it's like goes over the blockers. <laughs> That's a very difficult shot. And it's something that Mark Richards in his rookie season for this league has perfected as well. Mark, I watched your perfect game uh, the other day, uh, 36 in a row. You know, I, I think about how difficult bowling is because to be consistent, I think about golf, how difficult. Cornhole is the same way. How have you been able to master it in your rookie season? Well, I think a couple of things um, I can pay tribute to that. The first thing would be um, the bags that I throw, throw from Gladiator. The bags are really hole friendly, meaning when I throw a bag that might be to the left or to the right a little bit of the hole, it's probably going to grab onto the hole and go in. So um, the bags that I throw are really um, hole friendly first off. Second off, I actually um, started this about a month ago where I put three of the bags on the board and I really focus on one bag at a time. And I think throughout that that run of 36 in a row, I really did a good job of focusing on each bag and trying to put it in the hole. What kind of mental game is Cornhole, Mark? Um, so personally, for me, it's kind of like when you watch those movies and you see like a, a long alleyway and it's just like a, a bright light that leads down the whole way. I think that's kind of like me when I'm throwing. All I focus on is the bag in my hand and the hole that's down for me. Stacy, as the commissioner, when you're watching this sport, obviously they have to really be at the top of their game for people to care, right? And you've been able to create this league since 2015 and found these amazing players. When we see people put it in time after time again, we don't get tired of that when we're watching. We're rooting for them to do that. And that, that's that's more a part of the excitement, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and Mark's run there wasn't as easy as it sounds as just sliding the bag in the hole. He had to he had to navigate around his opponent playing some pretty good defensive strategies uh, against him. So what he did in that perfect game is incredibly impressive. And uh, the fact that he can do that his, his rookie season, I think, sh shows the kind of depth that we now have developed in our sport. So. Uh, as we've grown in popularity, the quality of play of our pros has gotten so good that out of our 256 pros, just about anyone could win a singles event uh, at any given time. So and the number of people coming out trying to qualify to become a pro, uh, it's been really great to see kind of at the local level and what we've been able to do at the grassroots to, to build this sport. And the top female pro is Kaylee Hunter. And Kaylee, 
since this is just your second season, how about the rivalries? Have you already started to have some rivalries with fellow competitors? Have you felt pressure from from opponents? Um, well, even the women talent is really good. Um, last year, I was kind of like an up-and-coming player, but this year um, I've done a lot better. I've made more TV appearances. You know, I've actually kind of made a name for myself this year. Um, now, like, when I step up to the girls, they're like, oh, it's Kaylee now, like, because they actually know that this year I've been killing it. So I wouldn't say rivalries, but they definitely know who I am now. When you're calling the action, Trey, what is it about Mark and Kaylee that you think makes them stand out in, in such a short period of time? Yeah, it's got to be mental focus. So I've even seen uh, an uptick. Obviously, Mark is is a rookie, so I, I don't have a lot to compare it to last season, right? But Kaylee, even I can see a difference in last season. This season, it's ability to channel the nerves, right? And Kaylee Hunter last year was a player that had all the tools, but it was a question of could she take all those talents and all those tools and all those shots that she had and could she combine that with a really strong mental game in order to become a dominant player? And that's something that she's been able to do transitioning from last season to this season. You hear Mark, one of Mark's biggest, you know, um, uh, mental sayings is, is focusing on every single bag, right? And, and so often we get to a point where a player walks up to the board and they go, I need to throw all four bags in, Right. But that's not the mentality for Mark is my mentality for Mark is this single bag that I have in my hand. What am I going to do with this and whatever I'm going to do with this bag, whether it's put it in, put it on, throw an airmail, try to drag a bag, try to do whatever. He's focusing on that singular bag. And so, again, it all go, goes back to that mental toughness and that mental strategy. Mark has become an elite player just in his rookie season for the ability to focus on that shot by shot. And that's something that, although Kaylee didn't do it immediately out of the gate last season, you're seeing more and more of her do it this season. You can see my entire conversation about the American Cornhole League on the WBGO Facebook page. In his third film, Nope, Jordan Peele follows the progression of modern American directors from small indie filmmakers in their early films, think Marty Scorsese or Spike Lee, to big-budget filmmaking, an estimated $69 million for Nope. That's not gargantuan by Christopher Nolan or Steven Spielberg standards, but it did allow Peel room to have some genre-bending fun and tech expansion into outer space. Our film critic Harlan Jacobson has much more. In Nope, Jordan Peele is like a kid in the American film genre candy store. He takes big helpings from the sci-fi adventure yarns of Joe Dante, as in Gremlins, a little Spielberg adventurism, the Hollywood homage and humor of Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the menacing alien sci-fi film, Old Testament Division, and the new Western genre, the way Chloe Zhao and Riders and Jane Campion and Power of the Dog both took aim at and blew away the mythology of American Marlboro man masculinity. In Nope, most of the cowboys and girls are all fakes, poseurs, some kind of corporate weasels out panning for profit, except for our heroes, of course. Daniel Kaluuya returns from us and Get Out as Peel's alter ego hero named O.J. Haywood, heir to a horse training ranch for Hollywood movies, a legacy business started by his late father that O.J. wants to honor. And yes, 
Peel's script pokes fun right up front at his given name, O.J., and manages overhead shots following O.J. on a Bronco rather than inside one. There's a lot of winking at the audience in Nope, all okay with me in service to a good time. Thing is, O.J. is pursuing a business deal with a nearby tourist cowboy ranch run by an ex-TV kid show child star named Jupe, the sole survivor of the notorious episode in which Gordy, the title chimpanzee of the kiddie TV show within the backstory, throws a rock'em sock'em star tantrum that Peel underlines as a revolt of the natural world. Gordy beats the entire cast and crew to death on live kiddie TV, all except for the petrified kid star Jupe, with whom he is about to share a fist bump that, uh, well, falls short. It's a sequence you won't want to miss. Get popcorn. Flash forward to grown-up Jupe, played by Minari star Stephen Ewan, who's apparently learned nothing from the fist bump that didn't happen, except the wrong thing. Business is everything. He's monetized and set up a dummy cow town in the California desert to lure the yahoos out to see the alien spaceship. I admit this is a peel plot gimme that's confusing. It's the same flying saucer that O.J. goes to great lengths to decode behind a stationary cloud that is very hush-hush, while Jupe is selling tickets. Oh well, it's the setup for your basic War of the Worlds that follows. Kaluuya plays O.J. with one-word taciturnity from the Hollywood mythic Old West, usually nope, which grounds his character in the great American Western heroes of the 50s whom I don't have to name. The point is, O.J. is the real deal in a timely appropriation of power that says, we're here and we're up to the gig. Hoyt Van Hoytema, Christopher Nolan's ace cinematographer Tenet, Interstellar, and Dunkirk, and Peel keep the story and color palette mostly midnight blue, black, or brown, so it's often Kaluuya's white moon eyes, looking back at his super-vitaminized sister Emerald, played by Kiki Palmer, to answer her, calm her down, or direct her to what's up next. Emerald has a different agenda than Brother O.J.'s. In a pretty snazzy bit of writing, Peel makes Emerald a saleswoman with an eye to race and film history when she connects up the nameless black jockey and Edward Mybridge's 1887 two-second footage of a nameless black jockey on a galloping horse to her great-great-granddaddy, thus cementing the Haywoods as motion picture royalty in a Hollywood that doesn't know who they are. Ergo, Emerald wants to cash in and cash out. She wants to get the alien spacecraft on film. Did you know that the very first assembly of photographs to create a motion picture was a two-second clip of a black man on a horse? And that man is my great-great-grandfather. Great. There's another great-grandfather. But that's why back at the Haywood Ranch, as the only black-owned horse trainers in Hollywood, we like to say since the moment pictures could move, yeah, skin in the game. Peel sends some characters, O.J. and Emerald's way, to join the battle with this higher power. There's the obligatory techno-geek nerd Angel, Brandon Perea, and crazy ex-wildlife cinematographer Antler's host, Michael Wincote, who want to capture the spaceship on old-school film rather than digital. Everybody's an artist, it seems. But it's also true that aliens can read and destroy digital, as they should. Nope's flying saucer 
is an all-purpose central metaphor. It happens to look suspiciously like a disembodied flying anus where screaming innocents have gone to die. Peel takes us up and inside where you really don't want to go in a sequence underscored with a soundscape of screaming hell you really don't want to hear, but worthy of what you imagined in Jaws or the biblical Jonah inside the whale. Another Peel sequence calling for more popcorn. With the generality of the space anus, Peel has earned the same criticism leveled at director Adam McKay for being unfocused or obvious or both in Don't Look Up, last year's Avenging Meteor movie. And the knock on Peel and Nope is that his characters did more with less in his previous films, Us and Get Out, which requisitioned the zombie division of the horror film to set loose characters that took middle-class white racism and black complicity into the basement or out into the front yard for a whooping. Peel is following Hitchcock in making an art thriller meant to make money. While Hitch didn't want the bosses to think of him as an artist, Peel is dealing from a stronger studio position. You either go with it or you go home. Peel hasn't specifically made a racial critique film, like any of the last number in recent years from Passing, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, One Night in Miami, or even Denzel Washington's workup of August Wilson's Hill District and Fences. More in keeping with the Cones Macbeth, or like James Samuel's The Harder They Fall last year, Nope has a 99% black top cast, but isn't just about blacks occupying white landscape, though it does that. On the one hand, it's a warning to stop exploiting the wild earth, which is colorblind, but requires a certain minority disposition and cast. On the other, Nope's plot follows the lonely Hollywood sci-fi cowboy's path to victory, by strategizing how to come around the side door to combat a malevolent power from above. And it does so with a laugh. That's a full suitcase to unpack and has earned Peel some raves from critics, but also a lot of flack for lack of discipline and tone. I went with it. I had a great time. It's summer. Please note that this review did not start, employ, or end with the one-word temptation of nope or yup. Remember, there are two kinds of people in this world, Clint Eastwood said, as the man with no name in the good, the bad, and the ugly, those with loaded guns and those who dig. Well, I dig Jordan Peele, and I'm Harlan Jacobson. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz station, WBGO and WBGO.org.